Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. I've been talking a lot about the Satipatthana in the recent months, the Buddha's teaching on contemplation of experience in terms of Dhamma. As I've presented it, Satipatthana is itself critically dependent on the cultivation of samadhi or jhana, profoundly serene meditative states that nonetheless permit the continuation of silent contemplation. This has been in association with my ongoing research project that I call Rethinking the Satipatthana. These ideas may appear academic. I'm a scholar monk. But at the same time, they are useless if they are not put to use in practice. Luckily, putting them to use in practice is a relatively simple, non-scholarly endeavor. In fact, an intellectually overactive mind might be a hindrance to their successful practice. I plan to change the tenor of these talks for the upcoming weeks, and instead of talking about Satipatthana, do Satipatthana. I'll simply provide grounded meditation instructions in simple terms for each of the Satipatthana exercises, for instance, on the breath, on body parts, on corpses, on mind, and so on. This will be in more like the style of guided meditation, but not exactly, I'll present what it is you are supposed to do when you sit down to meditate without footnotes. I would like to invite each of you to join me in experimenting with this in your own meditation practice and see what happens. I've been meditating since about 1980, but it is only for about the last year and a half since I felt I gained my own understanding of the Satipatthana, that I've tweaked my practice to encompass these principles that I've been talking about all of these weeks, I think with beneficial results, but I may be biased. It should not be much of a stretch for any of you to adopt these principles of Satipatthana rethought but perhaps a challenge for many to break out of whatever technique you've habituated. We do tend to cling to the meditation we've been taught because our experience with it has generally been profound. For those who want to try this out, I would hope to hear from you to get a report on your experience or to request further guidance if you get confused. For others, these meditations can be viewed as examples of what I've been talking about all these many weeks. I can be reached by email at bhikkhu.chintita at gmail.com. That is my name with a dot in the middle. I'm considering offering a first Satipatthana Rethought Retreat, possibly this winter, 
and probably in Austin, Texas. Next week, I will begin by talking on this podcast about the Satipatthana breath exercise in simple terms. Today, though, I will stay in scholarly mode in order to answer the question, why scholarship at all? Why not just teach how to meditate? That's pretty much what the Buddha did, isn't it? Alongside a variety of other practices in ethics, harmonizing with others, letting go of attachments, reframing harmful ways of thinking, and so on. An immediate answer is that Satipatthana is not just meditation. It is contemplation on Dhamma, and Dhamma can be very refined and subtle. But even Dhamma has experiential correlates and over-intellectualization of the Buddha's teachings, which in fact entered Buddhism in the centuries after the Buddha, risks obscuring that experiential connection that the Satipatthana relies on. So what have I been doing these last weeks? This might need some justification. There is much we do not understand about the message of these early Satipatthana texts. Or rather, there is astonishing little in these early texts that we interpret consistently or convincingly. The Satipatthana has confused me for a long time. My recent investigation was launched as a result of my puzzlement at the interpretation of contemplating body in body, etc., internally and externally, a topic taken up 21 times in the primary text, as having to do with contemplating one's own body than contemplating someone else's body. I was not convinced. Moreover, many teachers of Satipatthana and Vipassana insist that these analytical practices are incompatible with the silence of jhana, or the higher states of samadhi. Yet the early Satipatthana discourses, albeit not the Satipatthana Sutta itself, consistently and clearly describe the close integration of the jhanas with Satipatthana practice. One even describes Satipatthana itself as a samadhi, and the integrated practice is claimed to develop knowledge and vision of how things are. This conundrum concerned me. I also found no satisfying account of what the bodily formation in the whole body of breath meant. It seemed to me that part of the confusion about what the Satipatthana texts say comes from a history of reinterpretation of key concepts. It has now been abundantly documented and is becoming widely acknowledged, for instance, that the meaning and role of samadhi and jhana found in the commentaries, particularly in the seminal Visuddhimagga, contrast markedly with what is found in the early texts. Much of the confusion about the Satipatthana seems to have resulted from attempting to reconcile multiple contrasting historical frameworks that don't in principle cohere. In short, scholarship is necessary to understand what the Satipatthana even says. 
and understanding what it says is a prerequisite for teaching it properly. Recent progress in dating Buddhist texts has encouraged prioritizing the scholarly study of early Buddhist texts, EBT, the earliest stratum of Buddhist scriptures. This approach allows us, in principle, to avoid becoming entangled in the inconsistencies that have developed historically by focusing on the Dhamma as the Buddha taught it, at least as far as we can determine. What generally count as EBT are roughly the bulk of discourses of the Buddha and early disciples found in the first four Nikayas, parts of the fifth and parts of the Winaya, as found in the Pali Canon, as well as in parallel traditions preserved in other languages, primarily in Chinese. The EBT paradigm chooses to let these texts speak for themselves, and this guides what I present here. Since the Buddha and his disciples did not have the advantage of the Visuddhimagga or other later resources at their disposal, the authority of these later texts in interpreting the early texts is contestable. However, the early texts seem clearly to have been articulated in the context of the early Upanishads, or other related but no longer existent pre-Buddhist teachings, and in certain cultural, intellectual, and physical contexts. Thus, these form a rich source of relevant clues, particularly in the etymology of early Buddhist terminology, for accurately interpreting early Buddhist texts. And of course, knowledge of the Pali language has proved indispensable. Any remaining inconsistencies between the early and later Buddhist texts are then explained in terms of either innovation or mistransmission, and this has spun off separate traditions whose relative merits can be left to scholars of later schools to assess. In addition to assuming the EBT perspective, I also employ criteria of functionality, coherence, field testing, and cognitive consistency in rethinking the Satipatthana. Field testing is where you might help. Underlying functionality is my own conviction that the Dhamma serves solely as a support for practice, and practice provides benefits in terms of spiritual and practical goals. Even the most philosophically sophisticated and astute points of Dhamma are no more than parts of the scaffold to which practice adheres. Philosophy alone does not produce spiritual practice. I'm certain the Buddha understood that. Accordingly, we can ask of any Dhammic teaching, how do we put this into practice? Or why would the Buddha teach this? Where is the benefit? Functionality offers a strong constraint on what can be considered a viable interpretation of the early texts. These questions keep our understanding of Dhamma well-grounded. I also view the early texts as remarkably coherent, systematic, and well-spoken. The point is easily obscured, first because the early Dhamma was spoken 
in many very short self-contained discourses, and second, because the early Buddhist discourses themselves are often shown to be unreliable victims of demonstrable ancient editing. Our task in recognizing the underlying coherence is therefore like piecing together a jigsaw puzzle in which some pieces are missing and in which other pieces have been mixed in from other jigsaw puzzles. At some point, we nevertheless recognize, by George, it's the Golden Gate Bridge. A particular interpretation of the whole has shown forth that we cannot easily disregard, and once this has happened, it becomes the basis of interpreting the remaining unplaced pieces and rejecting some of these altogether as intruders from other people's jigsaw puzzles. Although the conclusion cannot be proven decisively and still admits of debate, the convergence of evidence from many sources becomes so overwhelming to those who see what shines through that doubt disappears and what shines forth repeatedly is a coherent, functional system of teachings. Since the Buddha was a very systematic and practical thinker, coherence offers another strong constraint on interpretation. As a matter of method, it is important all the while to be extremely reluctant to reject a particular piece as foreign. Field testing occurs through the actual practice of particular interpretations of Dhamma. This is where you can help. The Buddha made abundantly clear that the Dhamma is to be verified by the wise and instructs us to come and see. And so we do. In fact, the purpose of the Satipatthana in particular is to support such experiential verification of Dhamma. It follows that the Buddhist adept, that may be you, accomplished in practice, will be in an especially good position to evaluate viable interpretations in terms of practice experience. In fact, in a far better position to witness this shining through than the mere scholar. The adept is like the jigsaw enthusiast who has actually been on the Golden Gate Bridge, who is already familiar with its features and the contours of land and seascape around it. Field testing is an essential ultimate constraint on interpretations that can otherwise easily result solely from clever scholastic speculation. Finally, cognitive viability asks of our interpretation that it makes sense in terms of what is independently known of how the human mind works. This is my forte. When we practice samadhi, gain insight into non-self and impermanence, gain independence from crippling attachments, or attain awakening, it is within the confines of human cognition. As an erstwhile cognitive scientist, I bring a considerable degree of erudition to the table in this regard, and great admiration 
for possibly the world's first cognitive scientist, the Buddha. Understanding the role of cognition fills in the details of the criterion of functionality in interpreting the Dhamma. For those of us who have not underestimated the capabilities of human cognition in practice, the cognitive perspective seems often to extend rather to constrain the opportunities for interpretation of the early texts, simply because most of us already underestimate the capabilities of human cognition. The cognitive perspective has turned out to be particularly productive for improving my understanding of what is going on in Satipatthana practice. For instance, Dhamma practice is about acquiring and applying skill. Effectively, it teaches us to become a virtuoso of virtue and a wizard of wisdom. In addition, it enables us to become a maestro of mastery by means of acquiring the art of skillfulness itself through development and application of know-how, ardency, and attention. Modern research tells us that skill acquisition and training are largely a matter of internalization of explicit conceptual know-how so that it becomes spontaneous, effortless, intuitive, quick, and quiet. A virtuoso pianist does not think, but lets the music simply arise through her, as if in a trance. This helps us understand how the silence of samadhi aids in internalizing the wisdom of the Buddha, a huge dilemma In short, modern scholarship helps us reconstruct what these ancient texts, so far removed from us culturally and intellectually, actually say. Scholarship of some kind has always played a role in comprehending the Dhamma as a coherent whole, seeing how it functions, which has always been a hedge against misinterpretation. As long as we maintain this functional perspective, as well as keep in mind that theory is only there to support practice, we are reminded to stop short of over-intellectualization. But in the end, the proof of the pudding is in the taste. Let's see if we can get some awakening going on here in this practice that is specifically targeted to complete the final stages that will bring us to knowledge and vision of how things really are. Next week, I'll begin the series of meditations, intending at this point to cover all 21 exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta. Any existing meditative skills should serve you well if you choose to try these, The main differences from what most people are doing is the consistent focus on Dhamma. And for most of these exercises, this varies little from non-self and impermanence. And the careful intersection of samadhi with satipatthana, which most people are doing anyway, even if they don't know it. (laughs) 
learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is S-I-T-A-G-U dot org C-I-N-T-I-T-A.